0: Chapter Five of *The Track of the Typhoon* by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter Five: Loafing in English Waters. Typhoon lay at anchor for the first time in twenty-two days off the Squadron Castle. All about her, the harbor was alive with interesting craft, ranging from the Royal Yacht Victoria and Albert, over on our starboard hand down to the fleet of international 18-footers and a heterogeneous assortment of motorcraft and steam pinnaces. Alongside us lay an ML converted into a yacht, and just astern, one of the famous CMBs also used privately, I imagine, although you can't be sure, for the squadron ensign is the white one of the Royal Navy. The most striking thing about the fleet as a whole was the great variety in the types of craft. There were new boats and old boats, trim raiders and sturdy cruisers, many of them what might be called single-handers. The boats as a whole reflected an admirable disregard on the part of their owners for the other fellow's opinion. Each one seemed to reflect the personality of its owner. They indicated a genuine love for the sport rather than a competition in the matter of style and speed. Motorboats, strictly speaking, were in the minority, and except for the converted submarine chasers, there was scarcely an example of what might be termed the express cruiser. The extremely high price of gasoline, or petrol as it is called in England, of course was partially responsible for this, but I think the real explanation lies in the fact that this type of craft is not compatible with the temperament of the British yachtsman. He has in his veins more of the tradition of the sea than we have, and he runs rather to the types that have been evolved through generations as the most suitable for his conditions— which, on the whole, are somewhat more severe than our own. Nowhere in England is there a body of water that would compare with Long Island Sound, except possibly the Solent and the various estuaries, and while we saw little evidence of it during our stay, the winds as a general thing are stronger than our own, as might be expected on the lee side of the Atlantic. By far the greater number of the boats about us were auxiliaries, staunch sailing craft with low auxiliary power, Many of these were 20 or 30 or even 50 years old, but all were kept up regardless of age or type. There were Falmouth Key punts, Bristol Pilot Cutters, double-enders of the North Sea type, and some that showed the skill of Fife or Linton Hope, or the late Albert Strange. There were all types of rig, but the most popular were the Cutter, the Yawl, and the Catch. The Sloop, except in racing craft, is practically unknown, and the Schooner is rare. All this we could see in the early light as we snugged down Typhoon preparatory to the first undisturbed sleep we had had since leaving Baddock. Our coming to cows had been like that of a modest burglar. Not so our awakening several hours later. It seems that cows had heard of our departure from Baddock and had been expecting us, but not so soon. We were jolted into consciousness about eight o'clock by the arrival of the customs authorities, whom we received in our pajamas. The irrepressible Casey, seizing upon the opportunity as an event demanding a certain amount of hospitality, broke out a case of Canadian rye, and in consequence the formalities incident to entering our ship were brief indeed. The little informal health certificate which our friend Dr. Macaulay had scribbled the midnight of our departure from Baddock, was accepted, and we were given the formal certificate of pratique. This finished, we were legitimate prey for a horde of newspaper correspondents, photographers, and the movie men. With an admirable disregard for convention, Baldwin insisted on being photographed in his luridly striped night gear, much to the disgust of the skipper, who endeavors to maintain an air of dignity and respectability at all times. With the assistance of the customs launch, the press contingent, and our faithful friend Harry Speed, the boatman, we found a more convenient mooring off the pontoon and if some of the assistance was a bit sketchy from over-participation in Casey's hospitality, there were enough willing hands to make the job light, and almost in less time than it takes to tell it, we were securely berthed with bow and stern lines out to the big mooring buoys which are provided for this purpose. From this time on, Harry Speed became our guide, philosopher, and friend, and in helping with our repairs, taking on stores, and looking after Typhoon, his services were invaluable. His name is not exactly descriptive, for his virtues, while manifold, do not include quixotic or impetuous haste of action. Reliability would have been a better cognomen. In the meantime, the Victoria and Albert, with the royal family aboard, had left the harbor, but many of those who came to Cowes for regatta week had stayed over for the international motorboat races, and for the rest of the day, and in fact for the three weeks our ship remained at Cowes, there was scarcely a moment that some interested visitor was not aboard. The Royal Yacht Squadron sent us an invitation to make use of the castle, and the Royal London Yacht Club made us honorary members during our visit. A list of those who visited Typhoon, had one been kept, would have been most interesting. From the highest to the lowest they came, and all were welcome. One of the first of our visitors was General John Seeley, the Lord Lieutenant of Hampshire, who came aboard and welcomed us in the name of the king and expressed a regret that his majesty had left without an opportunity to inspect our ship, in which he felt the sailor king would have been interested. The Earl of Dunraven did us the honor of coming aboard. I say did us the honor not from any particular respect for titles, but because of his record as a sailor. All but the youngest of our yachtsmen will remember Lord Dunraven as the owner of the Valkyries that attempted to lift the America's Cup. Several days later I returned Lord Dunraven's visit. The grand old Irishman's yacht is a tremendous thing that was used as a hospital ship during the war. The absolute ideal, according to the popular conception of what a steam yacht ought to be. But as he welcomed me aboard, he said, "'You know, Nutting, I'm not satisfied with this sort of thing. I'd much rather have a tiller in my hand. I'm a sailor at heart. But this ship is comfortable, and she was useful during the war.' "'But I know what you want,' he continued with remarkable insight into the innermost consciousness of a perfect stranger. "'You want a good old American cocktail.' "'And I did.' "'As I left him, I explained to Lord Dunraven that, so far as I was concerned, he could sail any old kind of a ship he chose. "'Several days after our arrival, a modest sort of man rowed by in a dinghy with a couple of ladies, evidently wishing to come aboard.' Casey, who was standing in the companionway, smiled reassuringly. But after several unsuccessful attempts to muster courage to invite himself aboard, the retiring gentleman rowed away. We found out later that it was the Duke of Leeds. Imagine a well-known member of our most prominent yacht club rowing about Newport Harbor in a ten-foot dink. The Englishman has not forgotten how to play. Every day during our stay at Cowes brought new and interesting craft that dropped in and out of the Solent. One of the most noteworthy of the many boats that were moored near us was an auxiliary cutter of the famous Bristol pilot type, owned by Mr. F. W. Lanchester, whose works on aerodynamics are well known in this country. I had heard the praises of the type sung by a number of the British writers, but she was the first of the class that I ever met up with. Built originally as a pilot boat, she had been taken over by Mr. Lanchester and converted, according to his own ideas, into a most comfortable cruiser. She was typical of her class, a little larger than the Typhoon, but much bluffer of bow and fuller in body, giving her a great deal more room below decks. In their work in the Bristol Channel, such boats are handled by two men, or sometimes, in fact, by a man and a boy, and when the pilot goes aboard the incoming ship, the boat frequently is sailed back to her mooring single-handed. There is a great deal to be said for the cutter rig for cruising, as I have always felt since the days of the old Nereus. My friend Claude Worth considers it the ultimate type, as exemplified by his auxiliary, Turn 3. Another of our friends was the solapax, a 40-footer, owned by Mr. E.G. Hawker of Poole. Solopax is a double-ender of the North Sea type, and although but 40 feet on top, has full headroom throughout under a flush deck. She is a high-sided, buoyant-looking ship, as the picture will show, and her gear, like that of Mr. Lanchester's cutter, made that of Typhoon actually look light. SolaPax is 36 feet on the waterline by 12 feet beam and 6 foot draft, and is powered with a 2-cylinder 15-horsepower kerosene motor. She is rigged as a catch, with the rudder hung on the curved sternpost, like many of the Scandinavian fishing craft, and steers with a tiller which is universally used in England in preference to a wheel. Unique among the craft with which Typhoon hobnobbed was a Dutch barge-type yacht, which I knew instantly, as she luffed up near us, as the Velsa, once owned by Arnold Bennett, and on which he wrote, From the Log of the Velsa. This boat is now owned by Mr. Herbert Reach, the editor of Yachting Monthly, who dropped in at Cowes to look over the typhoon, and it would be possible to devote a whole volume to her many unusual features. In Denmark I had seen a number of freighters of the Dutch barge type, but I had always felt that in spite of the claims that are made for them, they were more picturesque than efficient, defying as they do most of the precepts of naval architecture. I had not realized what a really comfortable cruiser such a boat would make until I stepped aboard the Velsa. All the peculiarities of the original type had been retained in her design, including the tumbled home topsides, the spoon bow, lee boards, and tremendous carved rudder. The bow is a bit flatter, I believe, than is customary and must be a terrible thing in a head sea. but for cruising in shoal water where the ability to lie over a tide on the mud get under bridges and the like, is necessary, she would be hard to improve on. Her mast is stepped in a tabernacle and can be lowered by means of the deck winches, and her rig, while complicated in appearance, has many advantages for shorthanded work. The loose-footed mainsail, which, by the way, is characteristic of most English cruising craft, may be triced up at the tack and is much easier to reef than our own laced sail, The bowsprit is of the reefing type popular on the other side and may be completely drawn in when lying at a mooring or when the weather is such as not to require the jib. Below decks, Velsa is a veritable houseboat with more room than a Harlem flat, and her joiner work is of a school now practically dead. When they built Velsa, they built her for a hundred years, and her construction was an eye-opener to me. I thought I knew what heavy construction was, but Velsa, in this respect, transcends anything I have ever seen. While most of the boats were auxiliary cruisers, there were exceptions. I remember one boat, about 35 feet long, evidently a converted ship's lifeboat, with considerable power and a stocky, short catch rig. This boat, I found later, belonged to one of Typhoon's friends. I have forgotten the exact circumstances of our meeting with this yachtsman, but I remember distinctly one beastly, rainy night we were stumbling along the unlighted streets of cows on our way to a dinner when someone hailed us with, Typhoon! Ahoy! I shouted back, Hello, old top! Can you direct us to H. Lodge? The muffled stranger happened to be going to the same place, and we trudged along together through the rain. When we arrived, he proved to be Lord Albemarle. When I remarked to him later upon the fact that many of the members of the Royal Yacht Squadron, the most exclusive club in the world, were content to play about with small boats, in contrast to the yachtsmen of some of our best-known clubs, he laughed and explained the phenomenon on purely economic grounds. There may be an element of truth in the explanation, but the fact remains that most Englishmen prefer to sail comparatively small boats. General John Seeley sails a 10-ton Falmouth Key punt, and his brother, Sir Charles, owns, or rather owned, a 35-ton yawl that was wrecked on the French coast while we were at Cowes. As we of the typhoon were in a sort of unofficial way representing American yachtsmen, it may not be out of place to express here our appreciation of the delightful hospitality of both Sir Charles and General Seeley, to whom we are grateful for glimpses of Gatcombe and Brook, the sort of historic country places that we Americans see pictured in architectural journals, but seldom have the opportunity to see and touch. Their kindness was characteristic of that shown us on all sides. Everyone on the Isle of Wight seems to have the tradition of the sea in his soul, and we who dropped in out of the sea were fortunate in consequence. Cowes is the home of the famous Saunders shops, and we had an opportunity to see a good deal of the sort of work that this concern is now turning out. The Saunders motorboats are interesting more from the standpoint of their construction than from the design, which is of the usual V-bottom type. They are made entirely of consuto linen-sewn plywood, with which the hull is planked in five pieces, two for the sides, two for the bottom, and one for the transom. In the framing, the experience gained in the building of airplanes is apparent, and the finished boats are considerably lighter, I believe, than our own craft of this type. Over at Southampton, the Thornycrofts also are building interesting boats, Besides their speedboats, which are a development of the famous CMBs, this concern is building a number of light-fast cruisers, one of the best examples of which is owned by my friend Theophile Desnos, the vice-commodore of the British Motorboat Club. On a trip to London with Mr. Desnos, the run from Cowes across the Solent and up Southampton water was made in his Eileen two, and, little as I am interested personally in the express cruiser, I must confess, I enjoyed slipping along past the best of them at 15 knots. On the way up Southampton water, we passed group after group of odd craft, rusty and covered with the scars of hard usage. The remains of a vast fleet, developed for the highly specialized uses of the war, and worthless for any other purpose. There were mystery ships, double-enders at which you would have had to look twice to tell whether they were coming or going, patrol boats, sweepers, and the like, all bearing mute testimony to the terrible waste of a war which, due to our own reactionary selves, has left the world little in return for its heroic sacrifices, either material or spiritual, except a burden of debt and a great cynicism and disillusionment. And then there was the cruise over to the Hamble River, which, of all the places in England, probably is the most interesting to the man who sails his own boat, I had an invitation to attend a regatta at Burnham-on-Crouch over east of the Thames estuary, which I was unable to accept. This is another rendezvous for single-handers, but I can't see how it would be any more delightful than, say, Bursledon on the Hamble. The expedition to Bursledon was made on Redshank, the little sloop owned by my friend Ingham Reeves, to whom I am indebted for two of the most delightful days spent in England. His little auxiliary is a masterpiece in teak and mahogany, with the tanned sails that are so popular in England. The run from Cowes across the Solent was made under power, and as we turned into the Hamble from Southampton Water, we sighted my friend Parmenter, an American from Paris, who had sailed across the Channel and was cruising in British waters in a little French raider. His red sails were slatting idly in the calm, and we took him in tow, and all had dinner at the old ship house, the home of Mr. Reeves. I had heard that there were a lot of old MLs in the Hamble, and sure enough, a half mile or so from the mouth, we came upon the first group of these weather-beaten, battle-scarred little ships, moored four abreast and extending as far as the eye could see. For the first time I realized the magnitude of the job of building such a fleet, They extended for miles, and the strange and varied gear with which they were cluttered gave evidence of the extent of their work in the war. Most of them, I understand, had been sold to some French concern, to whom I suppose I am indebted for Typhoon's present steering wheel, which I lifted from one of the most dilapidated of the fleet. Since there were enough steering wheels to supply all the yachts that might be built in the next ten years, I feel no very great remorse. One of the principal reasons for visiting the Hamble was to meet Claude Wirth, whose Yacht Cruising is one of the best-known books on the subject. He had just returned from a cruise along the French coast in his 53-foot auxiliary, Turn 3, which is the embodiment of the experience he has gained with a number of cruising craft of all kinds. Here also was the Maud, the Fife-designed double-ended catch made famous in Worth's book and now owned by our good friend Dr. Bowers f e knight the author of the cruise of the falcon and the cruise of the alert was not aboard his houseboat and we missed him but we met dr harrison butler whose designs of tabloid cruisers are famous and also many of the other sailor men with whose names i was already familiar through their articles in the british yachting papers at swanwick not far from the old ship house were discovered recently the remains of an old viking ship which has lain buried in the mud since about the year 800 AD. At any rate, it was long before the Norman Conquest that a roving band of Norsemen descended on the Hamble River, which even then proved so attractive that the crew decided to remain, killing off the men and old women and settling down to a life of domestic happiness, thus spoiling a brilliant cruising career. In Typhoon's forecastle, there is a part of a plank from the old ship, with the tree still in place, and showing the marks of the huge square-headed iron nails used in its construction. After we had been at Cowes a week, we lost Baldwin. We realized when we started that it would be necessary for him to spend some time with the Admiralty in London, and then to rush back to Baddock. But when it actually came to his leaving, it was just plain hell. I tried to pound the typewriter that morning while he packed up, and when old faithful Harry Speed rode him away to the Southampton steamer, there seemed no joy in the world at all. Judging from Casey's face, on which the characteristic grin was struggling hard to stay put, he too was having a hard time of it. We were confronted with the problem of filling Casey's place, and I thought of the old crowd who were in the habit of dropping in at the motorboat office to talk boats, and I wished, as I have so often since, that they might have been along, old George Bonnell with whom I had cruised so many strenuous miles, or Sid Brees, or Coke Stevens, or Bayard Rodman, or any one of the members of the New York Canoe Club. W.P. Stevens, in particular, would have been in his element. W.P. has a very high regard for British yachtsmen and British yachting, and his articles are better known in England than they are here. Thomas Ratsey, the dean of yacht sailmakers, a man who not only practices sailmaking as a business but loves it as well, and still sails the Dolly Varden to frequent victories, although she is well over 40 years old, said to me, We admire Stevens' articles because of their absolute fairness and honesty. In fact, I can do no better than say that we consider W.P. Stevens a man without guile. Mr. Ratsey lost three sons in the war, and now runs his business single-handed under the name of Ratsey and Lapthorne, a branch of which we have at City Island. His shop is a veritable treasure house of yachting lore, and his home also reflects his interest in the subject. Given such an interest and a craftsmanship that transcends the term and should be spoken of as an art, no wonder Ratsey's sails are masterpieces. In speaking of the veteran sailmaker, Lord Dunraven told me that if he were making an estimate of British society, he would list Tom Ratsey as one of England's foremost gentlemen, and if that grand old Irishman's opinion is as good as his American cocktails, it is worth a great deal. We are grateful to Mr. Ratsey for his hospitality and his kind interest in the typhoon. Before we left, learning that we carried no trysail, he insisted that we take his own from the Dolly Varden. We have since had occasion to use this sail in many a tight place, and I don't really see what we should have done without it. But to get back to the matter of a crew... It would have been foolish for Dorset and me to attempt the long grind back to New York alone, but it began to look as if this might be necessary. We had opportunities to sell Typhoon, but I had determined to bring her back. I couldn't leave her over there after putting into her the thought and energy that I had, and after what we had been through together. I was determined to bring her back, even if we had to do it alone. In spite of his hard time of it on the way over, Dorset was keen to see it through, We had several applications from people who seemed not to realize the nature of such a cruise and whom we were forced to turn down. Then along came a couple of young chaps from a little sloop that had been moored alongside us for several days. They were expecting to go to Canada with a party in the fall and were of the opinion that they could arrange their affairs to come with us. They were good small boat sailors and their experience as captains in the tank corps during the war ensured their staying qualities. Of course, I don't mean staying qualities in the literal sense, for once started, there is nothing to do but stay. I refer more to those qualifications such as endurance, adaptability, and cheerfulness, without which I imagine a long passage at sea would be hell indeed. Our problem seemed solved as they rushed off to London, but due to lack of time, they were unable to make the necessary arrangements, and we were left within two days of the date we had set for starting, still without a crew. That evening the solution came in the form of a boatload of sea scouts. I had seen and admired these youngsters in the Humble River the day before, and as they luffed their long, rakish whaleboat alongside Typhoon with all the snap and skill of an American Coast Guard crew, I had an idea. They too had had one, for it seems that there were all sorts of stories afloat about the plans of the Typhoon, They clambered aboard, and their interest in every last detail of our equipment and their keen intelligence was most refreshing. Fox, the scoutmaster, a stalwart youth of 23, explained that he had tried to bring up his nippers in the way that they should go, and they certainly did reflect a lot of good hard training. They all wore the characteristic British Sea Scout uniform, jersey and shorts with bare legs. Fox explained without further formality that he would like to go back with us and that if we needed another hand, Hookie, one of his boys, a youngster of 18, with an overall length of 6 feet 2 inches, would like to go too, or rather, he felt that they would be able to do it, for there wasn't one of all the boatload who was not itching to sign on. But the next day brought news of paternal disapproval in Fox's case, and, of course, I advised that he forget it. But again that night, the youngsters gathered aboard. Fox was in a quandary, but decided to flip a coin, and the matter was settled. It was then late, but we were scheduled to sail the following morning, and the crew decided to row, there being no wind, the 14 miles over to the Hamble and back, to enable Fox to get his gear off the Black Rose on which he had been cruising. They were back in three hours, and at last things looked bright again. End of Chapter 5